Welcome back to another episode of the Washed Up Journalist podcast, brought to you by Legacy Preservation, a leader in the private publishing industry. Legacy Preservation, we write history, yours. My guest today is award-winning author Paul Hendrickson, who's written seven books, including Hemingway's Boat, Everything He Loved in Life and Lost, and Played by Fire, The Dreams and Furies of Frank Lloyd Wright. After attending a Catholic seminary in Alabama, Hendrickson attended St. Louis University and earned a bachelor's degree in English in 1967. He later earned a master's in English from Pennsylvania State University. In 1971, he joined the reporting team of Holiday Travel Magazine before working as a reporter for the Detroit Free Press. In 1974, he began reporting for the National Observer in Washington, D.C., a job which he held until he joined the Washington Post in 1977, where he would remain as a feature writer for the Style section until 2001. Hendrickson's nonfiction books have earned high praise. In 2003, he received the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Chicago Tribune's Heartland Prize for Sons of Mississippi, a story of race and its legacy. He won a second Heartland Prize in 2012 for Hemingway's Boat, which was also a New York Times bestseller and a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Now, without further delay, here's my interview with Paul Hendrickson. Let's get going. So um, I'd like to start with your your own upbringing and um, what influence, if any, your own parents had on your decision to enter journalism. And I know there was a, a detour in the seminary, and we can talk about that as well. But were your parents prolific readers? Were they writers? Were they people of letters? How did you fall into journalism? It's a beautiful question uh, because I've given it some thought in my life. Um, they were none of the above. Uh, they were two farm kids from Ohio and Kentucky, both with high school educations. My mother actually had won a college scholarship uh, to Mount St. Joseph's College in Cincinnati, but turned it down to marry my dad. They, she was a wartime bride. She was 21 years old and already had two babies on her hip when he went off to the war. They got married when she had just turned 19. He was the local soldier boy from the nearby air base, uh, airfield. This was Patterson Field in Dayton, Ohio, where he was assigned. And they met at a roller rink on a Friday night. And I know it sounds like a Frank Capra movie. I'm actually dealing with a little of this right now in in my in in maybe what will be the final book. But to circle, if if it's anything at all, and perhaps the ship has sailed. But to circle around more directly to your question, they were not people of letters. My father 
grew up on a Depression Kentucky farm. It was a sharecropper's farm of nine children. He was third born. My mother was an Ohio farm girl. You might say she was a little more literate. But here, I think, is the nexus of the explanation. Um, my father rose out of a colorful, folkloric Southern tradition in Western Kentucky. He is a man who can speak in metaphor, with, he's long dead, without knowing what a metaphor is. If he were sitting in a movie theater balcony and he smelled smoke curling up from down below, he might be tempted to say, we better get out of here before the damn fire starts licking at our boots. That's the way he would say it. It was that colorful, figurative sense of oral tradition he would have come out of. My mother was a very creative person with her hands. When we were growing up, she could do anything to make the house look festive for Christmas and all through the other seasonal holidays. She just had a creative flair. So for these un, two unschooled high school education, very smart people, especially my dad, wicked IQ, I think, um, uh, to put the uh, oral storytelling tradition together with the creative, naturally creative aspect, the male and the female get together and I think I bounced out um, just as a result in a more codified, formal way to start putting it down in words. Uh, so you were born in California. You grew up in the Midwest. You attended a seminary deep in the South. And as an adult, you've lived on the East Coast. So clearly you've been exposed to uh, many different places how did that in any way influence your writing, particularly in your ability to empathize with people of various backgrounds based on their own geography and their own tradition? That's a great question, too. Uh, yeah, I'm married to uh, a Philadelphian. The fact that we live in Philadelphia and in Washington, D.C., um, the fact that we live in Philadelphia is, oh, is, is circumstantial in a way, accidental. It's owed to the fact that I teach at the University of Pennsylvania. And initially I was riding the train up uh, one day a week from my desk, from my job at the Washington Post. Um, but my wife is a lifelong Philadelphian, even though she did live elsewhere, absolutely. But her siblings are all around here in this area. She's very rooted to Philadelphia. I am the opposite. You got it completely right. I was born in Fresno, California, because that was the last stop before my dad went overseas. He was training on a P-61 Black Widow at Hammer Field in Fresno, and that's where I came along behind my older brother. Um, uh, we lived in the Midwest growing up, downstate Illinois, 50 miles below Chicago. Uh, he was a farm boy. My mom was a farm girl. He was then after the war flying for Eastern Airlines, didn't want to live in the city, uh, flew out of Midway, the world's then busiest airport. Well, when the traffic shifted to O'Hare on the northwest side, 
we had to move up closer to the city, but certainly not in the city. We lived in the suburbs. Uh, I, I got, I left all that and went to the deep South at age 14 to study for the missionary priesthood with a small religious order and got incredibly intoxicated by the experience of the deep South. And then when that was over, then graduate, then university finishing up, then graduate school, then graduate school in the East, mostly the East, Penn State University, um, semi, semi East in the mountains. Uh, the work, the journalistic work was essentially in the East, even though the first major job I had was in at the Detroit Free Press, which was a very large newspaper, sixth largest in the country in the early 70s. So I, you know, your capitulation of this is exactly right. I'm rootless. I'm a rootless American that all these years have been married to my typewriter. And I do feel in a small way, it the diversity of where I have lived. I'm feel, I feel very rooted to the Midwest, but, um, but the fact that I've lived all over might have given me a small leg up uh, of empathy, of seeing how other people live. Okay. Um, I, I picture you in, you know, in 1977, you joined the staff of the Washington Post and I picture you, this Midwest kid coming into DC, or I guess a young man, did anything about Washington kind of knock you off your feet? And kind of a second part of that question, when you started at the Post, how, how low on the totem pole were you at the time? Uh, a sidebar on your question. You talked about being swamped. When I came out of the seminary at age 21, um, a virgin, obviously, had never met a Jew, had never been on a date, had never come close to kissing a woman. I landed at St. Louis University, and I talked about this in email. I didn't have that much college to complete. Um, so this Midwestern, fairly provincial Jesuit university, but excellent in its own way, St. Louis as a city accepted me. If I had gone to a bigger place, if I had gone home to Chicago, it would have swamped me because I was 21 years old and was emerging into the world, didn't know anything. If I can use profanity, which you'll edit out, I didn't know shit from Shinola. Uh, so St. Louis as a city and St. Louis University as a school accepted me. Um, I would have been totally swamped otherwise. By the time I got into the Washington Post, which is 12 years later, I came out of the seminary in 1965, graduate school, knocked around, some journalism jobs, working my way up a little more slowly. By the time I, the National Observer, for instance, in Washington, which was an old Dow Jones publication owned by the Wall Street Journal, by the time I came into the Washington Post in 1977, at age 30. Three, I was no longer exactly the rube, and yet I was going into this massive place of prestige in 1977 that was 
so full of itself because it was right in the afterglow of Watergate. I mean, Nixon had resigned in 74. I joined the, and I was living in Washington in that period, working for this newspaper, the National Observer. But I joined the Post in 77. Did I feel low on the totem pole, which is what you wanted to know? Absolutely, yes. Did I surprisingly begin to build myself up rather more quickly than I expected I would? Yes. I became a, I, I started as a feature writer, and the entire 23 years that I worked on staff, I was a feature writer in style. The style section was the tail wagging the dog, John. In those years, the, the, we wrote 150-inch pieces routinely. They were magazine-length pieces, and we could go off and work on them a month at a time. I, I built myself up to a certain level of acceptance and even prestige, dare I say it. When I started, though, the post felt like, I don't know, entering the front door of General Motors uh, with a with a couple of wrenches in my back pocket. I, I, I just felt so intimidated. The, the uh, so the feature writing is a perfect segue to my to my next question because as an auth- author of books, you've clearly demonstrated an ability to thrive at long form work. And I I did a little bit of research on some of your Washington Post writing in preparation for our conversation. And in fact, I found three stories in particular that I really enjoyed. One was a, uh, a 1998 kind of retrospective of the life of Robert Kennedy 30 years after he was killed. One was about uh, Ernest Hemingway's sons titled Papa's Boys from 1987. Right. And then uh, a 1991 piece about uh, a, a graffiti artist uh, named Cool Disco Dan that I really enjoyed. So the question, as I get there very slowly, um, looking at your long form work, did you ever have to almost rein yourself in? Because uh, I get the feel that like you were destined to do books before you ever wrote your first book. So did you kind of see the writing on the wall that maybe books um, were in my future and the journalism thing at a daily even though you were doing long form pieces was just kind of almost like a stopgap to get you there. Yeah. I love the question. Uh, um, the answer to all of it is yes. Uh, um, in a sense, John, I had to write myself off the newspaper and into books. Um, I think every journalist wants to, flatter himself with the idea that he's got to get out of the form um, of the newspaper, which is perishable, which dies in a day, and tomorrow will line the, ca- the canary's cage. And the, the um, ego in us says, no, I have to write something that's going to be between hard covers and is going to be on a library shelf, no matter how dusty it gets. Um, I was practicing long-form journalism at the best place in America for newspaper long-form journalism. I mean, there were almost was no second place, and, and, and that would be the history of the style section. 
And I was writing for the Sunday magazine as well. The cheese stands alone. So i that's just how good the place was. It was the tail wagging the dog. It's why all the other sections of the, of the newspaper hated us because we were having so much fun. And we got to write these long, incredible things of pretty much our own choosing, or at least some of us. I mean, the three that you mentioned, they were all my own ideas, self-generated. An editor didn't walk over to my desk and say, I think we should do something on Cool Disco Dan. That idea came to me from riding the subway in from Tacoma Park, Maryland, to the post and looking out the window, and here's all this graffiti every day and every night when going to the post and coming back. Who is this guy, Cool Disco Dan? Could I possibly find him? That's how that story. The, the Bobby Kennedy, yeah. I mean, it just so happens I remember these pieces so well. Here would be the writer's ego for you. I could even cite the first line of the Bobby Kennedy piece, which would have been published in June of 1998. It was 30 years after he died. The first line is, like his brother, comma, he died on the road. That's right. Um, uh I don't know. You and I know about that. You and I know about how hard it is to write the things that the lines just end up sticking. Um, oh, there's a big, there's a good story anecdote behind the Papa's Boys pieces as well. I don't know that we need to get off on that unless you want to. I mean, your more direct question is, was the Long-form journalism, granted that it's being practiced at a high level, at the finest place there is, which was being imitated around the country by other sections, but no, no other section could come up to it, started and founded by Ben Bradley a decade earlier. I mean, the feature section just used to be the women's sections of newspapers, but I knew more or less it was inevitable that I had to write myself off the paper and into books. I didn't know that I could do it. I didn't know that I would be successful at all. But, John, I think the point I'm trying to get to is I had to do it to survive. In a way, it was like painting myself into a corner. Um, I didn't want to go and try to become a hard news reporter on the national staff. I guess I could have done it, but I, it didn't psychically interest me. I couldn't be an investigative reporter. So you, I, I, mean, I don't have the qualifications. Wouldn't have been any good. Um, you take what you're doing to a, a high level, w aided by the editors who are working with you all the time, and then you say, I've got to try to flex this deeper muscle. Otherwise, what? Otherwise, I'm going to become a hack. Otherwise, I am not going to care as deeply every time out about the next story. And that is the surest way to hack them. 
So in a really strong, truthful sense, I had to write myself off the paper and go to books. And one reason I ended up at the University of Pennsylvania, or, or at least teaching, writing workshops in a university setting, was because I, I, you, I always, you have to have the base of income somewhere. I'm sure you know this about, you're experiencing this. I'm sure you do this. I'm sure this is in your own life. Part of what I'm saying is has to be resonating with you. Um, you, you have to have the base of income, and especially if you've got a family, uh, but you have, to, you have to try to write the books. So here I am, these many, these numerous books later, uh, could you say it this way, that all those post pieces, Cool Disco Dan and Bobby Kennedy and the Hemingway Sons and 400 others, however many, all just on the post, um, were my undergraduate, preparing me for my graduate work and PhD work, which were the books. That's a great way to look at it. I like that analogy. Um, speaking of your books, I recently finished Plague by Fire about uh, the life of Frank Lloyd Wright, although it's so much more than that. Um, and one thing that I came away impressed uh, or that was impressed upon me in that book, you have this incredible knack for inserting yourself very delicately and carefully into the narrative. And I'm thinking of a scene, and there was a numerous ones in the book, but early on you're talking about Midway Gardens in Chicago and your own times that you spent there reflecting. And you do it in a very delicate way. You don't overtake the characters you're writing about, but it's clear to me, the reader, that you're escorting me on the on this journey that I'm undertaking by reading your book. And there's something kind of comforting about that. As an author, how do you balance that bit of inserting yourself uh, without overtaking the subject you're writing about, do you think about it consciously or does it just kind of happen on its own? Well, boy, I have to compliment you. You are asking delicate, tricky, intriguing, sophisticated questions. Uh, the answer uh, can come at it, try to come at it a couple different ways. Uh, it's always a tightrope. And sometimes you fall off the tightrope. Thank you for the compliment, but not everyone, to, to put it mildly, would agree with you. They wouldn't, there would be swaths of people out there who would say, he does not insert himself delicately. He just, he inserts himself too overtly and obtusely and annoyingly. Um, when it works for some, it works all the way. And when it doesn't work for others, it works horrifically for them. And they're the first ones who want to stomp on it in an Amazon review or in a review in the New York Times book review or wherever. And maybe the answer is I'm willing to take the chance of that and part of the rest of the answer is because you 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 threw out three or four different ideas and streams of thought um another part of the answer is it is the voice i have grown into it's the voice that seems to me authentic 
it's the voice that moves me forward. It's, yeah, yes, voice. Voice is such a crucial word in writing. I mean, it's tied up with, it's not the same as tone, but it's, it's, it's a cousin of tone. But voice, what is your writer's voice? It's a cousin of the word style. Um, it's the voice that over the years and over the books, because mostly they're all like that. Uh, they are. I have grown into them. If the first book was a, re- was a reported memoir, that had to be written in a first-person voice. Uh, but an objective, so-called objective subject, like the Vietnam War, for Hendrickson to ins- insert himself into the narrative. Is this just rank ego or is it or is it something he's comfortable with? There's another point here. There's another point here. Um and you 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 used a word which uh which which rang the bell and I can't call the word back to me right now, but you'll get it in a second and maybe you'll suggest the word that, that you did use. But it but it was so right on. Part of what's going on in this method of writing, the voice of writing, which just, I'm not consciously doing it, it just feels natural, is the desire to let the reader in on the process. So in a sense, there's a kind of participatory aspect that I'm taking the reader along with me or inviting the reader along with me into this journey, showing him my doubts, my fears, my warts, and and trying to open up the narrative to the really subjective notion of what research is, what examination of another life is like, um, opening that window and letting, and some people really get it and like it and, and remark to me, gosh, I haven't quite uh, experienced anything like this. And others want to come down stomping with both feet and say, we don't need this. So you have an editor in New York, same guy, 40 years, Jonathan Siegel. I mean, well, he's the first to tell me when I'm falling off the tightrope. He's the first to say, hey, Hendrickson, this, this book's not about you. This book's not about you. This book is about these seven sheriffs standing in a circle trying to keep James Meredith from entering Ole Miss and, and, and their children and what happened to their children. Um, so it's a delicate, delicate, it's a dance. And, I don't, and, and by no means have I mastered the dance, John. I'm still trying to learn the dance. You hit on it, though, for me, and I didn't realize it until you said it, but it's that element of participation, of bringing me into the experience of how you got to the place that you got to to write the book that you wrote. And um, I, I'm the sort of guy, if I if I watch a film that I love, I want to go right away to the making of documentary or the behind the scenes takes. Like I want to, I want to see that process. And so maybe I'm someone that responds to that and you're right. There are people that don't, but 
Um, I, I at least thank you for doing it because it resp- I respond well to it. If someone went back, boy, would this ever be a uh, <laughs> some some rarefied uh, PhD guy looking at uh, models of journalism or something. If if somebody went back and studied all those post pieces, they would see directly the echoes of what we're talking about. I got a, I slipped it in. I got away with it. Every now and then, here and there, more often than most, more often than others, at the post. I've I've heard you say uh, either in a, a speech you've given or an interview you've granted uh, the phrase, and we're back to journal daily journalism now. The legs are the first to go, yeah. and I think you were talking about how journalism, in many ways can be a young man's game. And I wondered if you could just expand on that a little bit and then also kind of weigh the question in that, in that scenario, in that paradigm, do we potentially lose what I would refer to as institutional memory in the news business, or at least is that at risk? Yeah. Uh, Yes. And yes. And yes. I think the metaphor of the legs being the first to go is an absolutely true one. I mean, I can't do the books without having incredible legs because they're nonfiction books. They're incredibly research-driven, data-driven. And then out of that research, out of that data, you try to find, I mean, you try to find your story. But I can't write the story unless I do intense amount of research so the legs the legs have to keep going in book work but the difference is this the sheer amount of work that you have to put out as a journalist feed the beast feed the beast feed the beast the beast is all devouring if you don't have a story to put in there today put your arm in put your leg in uh feed the beast the beast has to be fed and I think that uh, that began to get to me. One of the reasons that I, it, that I had to leave, that I wrote myself off the paper. It's a constellation, all these issues and themes. Um, I think it's a truism. And your thought, which I don't know that I have thought about enough, I feel is absolutely true. Does the institutional memory suffer? Because, oh, how do I say this and not sound like an immodest jerk, which I may have been sounding already. I think there is some truth that we're separating the wheat from the chaff. And the wheat goes eventually, and the chaff remains. I have so much respect for these guys who last all the way through. How do they do that? How do they last? Not only to retirement to 66. So, John, I'm 76. I'm still going with the books and with the teaching at Penn. I'm only teaching one semester a year now. It's a hell of a a hell of a drain, a hell of a job, a hell of a challenge, a hell of a pleasure. 
um, especially with what's looming in front of us. And what, uh, so I don't have to face it till January, but who knows what it's going to be like. But here is my point. I, there's no way I could have possibly lasted to 76 as a journalist. I, I left when I was about 55. I was, there was an overlap. I was riding the train up from Penn. I think it was 54, 55. Ended up taking early retirement. Maybe I was 53 or something when I first started riding the train up one day a week. But here is the image for you. The prospect in my brain. I say I'm 53 and I've got a family. And I've already written some books, actually. But the prospect of, quote, lasting and getting my full pension to age 66 at the Washington Post, that was impossible. It was, it was so far away. It was such a mountain. I won't be able to last that long. So, again, I ended up finding a way to save my life by reinventing the wheel and coming into university life, but just dipping my toe in university life, uh, so to speak, and and being uh, in the writing program. Not any kind. Of, my God, if I if I were a true academic, it would have ruined me. It, it, um, so again, aren't we all in the process? of trying to survive and reinvent ourselves professionally so we don't go cold, stone cold. I don't know much about your life, but I think you probably did something of the same when you went to your present work. Yeah, that's fair. Or, or at least finding a way to um, to do what I do a little different way, kind of a, a new take on it, a new spin on it, which is essentially – when you went from long form newspaper pieces to books, you didn't you didn't suddenly become a, an airplane mechanic. You're still writing. It's still hands at the keyboard, and it's still intense research. It's just a different, maybe a little different lifestyle. The output's a little different. It's just uh, maybe it's what you do to keep our sanity. Is that fair? Yes, that's it. That's yeah. it. So you were a journalist in Washington. Um, basically at the advent of what we now call the 24-hour news cycle, which frankly might even have already died a swift death and maybe now it's the 10-minute news cycle. But did you notice any specific change um, in Washington with the way the business of journalism was viewed during that time when um, cable news was coming into the fore and uh, in some cases, uh, the news business was maybe under the fire a little bit, looked at a little skeptically in terms of reliability. Did you notice any change yeah. when yeah. that when that happened? Yeah, a lot of questions here. Um, I regard myself as a dinosaur of journalism. Um, I practiced it when, I mean, initially I was practicing it literally on typewriters. Even in the early days of the Post, we worked on six-ply carbons on electric typewriters. Um, I was practicing it when the God, the Holy Grail, was the print holding the newspaper in your hand. On the back end, um, the digital Washington Post started to exist, an online presence of the Washington Post. And I had a friend who said, hey, Paul. I've signed up to go join the Washington Post digital 
online presence across the river. See, this is what they thought of it in those early years. I mean, they, 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 it wasn't even downtown. It was across the Potomac River somewhere in the bowels of Arlington. And I looked at that guy and I thought, and he was a friend. And I'm thinking, oh, that poor bastard, he's committing career suicide. <laughs> I thought, who would ever run or read anything online? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, the only thing that counts is holding the thing in your hand. And Well, I couldn't see the writing on the wall. Now this uh, beautiful son who's arriving here in an hour and a half or so, um, he is so uh, attuned to it all. I mean, yeah, he's a senior editor at The Atlantic for Politics, but he's totally about social media. He, although he told me yesterday, we were talking, he sent me a long, long Twitter thread that had to do with me, that had to do with Hemingway's boat, the most really the only truly commercially successful book I've written. There's a note of immodesty. Uh, the dirty secret of the book business is that most books never pay back their advance, and the industry is driven forward by the Stephen Kings and the Bob Woodwards, et cetera, and the John Grishams. Right. Uh, so Hemingway's boat was both commercially and critically successful. And this long, long Twitter feed of people joining in, saying something about Hemingway's boat, literally, Pilar, down in Havana, and Hendrickson's book. Well, um, the reason for that, and I didn't even put two and two together, was because Hemingway's birthday was this week. It was the 21st. It was Tuesday. I had forgotten. He was born on July 21st, uh, 1899. And John... My son, who's always bucking me up, uh, I've gotten to that point where the, where, the, where the sons now buck up the father in the business. And John says, Dad, Dad, look at this Twitter feed. It goes on forever, and so much of it is about your book. Um, there wouldn't have been a ghost of a chance I ever would have seen it, ever would have known about it. The Twitterverse is an alternate universe for me. I know nothing about it. I'm not on social media of any kind. I'm not on Instagram. I'm not on Facebook. This is why I'm a dinosaur in the business. You also asked whether with the entry of cable news, which was happening on the back end, CNN, of my time, the 24-hour news cycle, I mean... Roughly, I was phasing out of journalism by the end of the 90s, uh, out of daily journalism. Uh, I taught my first class at Penn in 1998. I was still a staff member at the Post. They let me ride the train up one week and do one day a week and do it. And then I came back and did my stories. All that revolution was starting to happen. Um, I was dimly aware of it, in a sense. And the further part of your question here, you're asking too many challenging, provocative, stimulating questions. I mean, you're wondering about the watering down, the watering down of, of reliability, of respect. Uh, and, and has it all become, we're so polarized, so deeply polarized, 
journalism it has a lower respect now than it ever did. Um, newspapers die. They're all. It, there's only the coastal elites, uh, so to speak, and, and they're hated by the people in the heartlands. Um, I, I've missed all that, in a sense. John, beautiful John, who's coming here, when he sent me this long Twitter feed, and I looked at it with my mouth open, John. I looked at it with my mouth open, and I said, I never would have seen this. I never would have even known how to access it. And I wrote back to John and I said, this is such an incredible alternate universe that you are dealing with every day. And he wrote back and he said, and so dad said, the Twitterverse thing is a total mystery to me. It's an alternate universe. I never would have seen this if you hadn't sent it. Does the same thing exist on Instagram and Facebook, the messaging that is? I am quite happy to stay away since my mind is always so distracted anyway. I know David Marinus and others, Gene Weingarten, for instance, have transitioned over to it. It isn't for me. I am 99.99% sure. And John wrote back. I wrote that at 11.46 a.m. Thursday, yesterday. And John wrote back at 11.57 a.m., you are missing nothing. Not being present on social media is one of the wisest decisions. I would certainly leave it if I were older. But yes, people are certainly sharing and recommending your work on Facebook and Instagram and elsewhere. It's just another corner of the Internet. But I am envious of people like you and Matt, that's our older brother, who aren't on it every day. It is so stressful for me. I think you, uh, you raised a pretty smart son there. That's, uh, that's pretty deep. And I think he, I think he's onto something to be quite honest. And I think you answered my question too, in a roundabout way. And I, I apologize for asking about six questions in one there, but we got to it. I, uh, that was good. Um, if you'll permit me, there's two more quick avenues I want to go down before I get you out of here and, and get you on to your son to talk about Twitter. Um, the first one is this idea that you refer to, um, and I'm speaking specifically of the, the Frank Lloyd Wright book that you recently completed. The idea is the storytelling pockets. And I wondered if you could explain that to me a little bit because I'm intrigued by it. And also, I want to ask if that has its origins in any way, in, uh, in journalism. Hmm. Hmm. So here's what I would say, sticking up to the idea of the way I work. Um, I'm not a true biographer. I'm not a conventional biographer. I, I write history. I write quasi-biographies. I write experiments in group biographies. These are hybrid books. All forms of the book, all the books I've written are forms of hybrid. If I can do this final book, which has only been inside me for half a century about my father in World War II and his night fighter squadron on Iwo Jima, that will be a reported memoir. They're all hybrids of the form. So this raises the question, why can't he write 
a cradle-to-grave conventional biography? The answer is, I don't wish to. I don't have the psychic energy to. But John, I work as freaking hard or harder on the storytelling pockets than it than than the conventional by so the fact that I take a series of storytelling boxes and then fill in the connective tissue that's the key and 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 how can you do that and uh, do you do it successfully and I'm still learning to do it um, that doesn't mean that you're skimping my God I go as vertical as I possibly can. But somehow or other, my psychic energy to move me forward as a writer is tied up in what I think of as that old Latin figure of speech that I learned in the seminary, synecdoche, part for the whole. I wish to tell the parts and have them stand for the whole. But damned if I don't go ocean deep, on the parts, and damned if I don't try to figure out a synoptic way, a summary way, to tell the intervening parts, the connective tissue parts. And my editor so brilliantly comes in to all of this. We always have to factor in and speak about my editor. Um, it's the way I work. It's the way I wish to work. I don't, you could say, I don't know how to do the other. So it's default. It's by default. But you might also say, I got to be careful here, that, and, and, and not that I am consciously doing it, but you might also say that this default position of the storytelling pockets is really, in a sense, this is not the main motivation by any stretch, is really, in a sense, trying to, the word invent is too strong, but trying to advance a different literary form that may be the conventional, cradle-to-grave, every burp and fart of the story we don't want that anymore. We want something else. Um, the, the further part of your question is, was, did that reveal itself in some way back in the pages of the Washington Post? I'd say the answer is yes. I'd say that uh, if you tried to deconstruct the Bobby Kennedy piece, it's, it moves forward by storytelling pockets. I think you've done a good job of, uh, yeah, maybe inventing is too strong a word, but I think you've done a, a great job of advancing that hybrid form. I think it's, um, and again, maybe, you know, I think we all have writers out there that appeal to us more than others. And maybe part of what appeals to me about your writing is the way you bring the reader in. And it's those storytelling pockets that speak to me. And it's the, the uh, the the bit of inserting yourself into the narrative that speaks to me and um, I like it I think you're definitely on to something 
Last question. Um, and it pertains to the idea of truth, which I think is something that anyone who gets into journalism in the first place, at least at some part of it, they're indoctrinated with that word truth, either at the university setting or at a paper or wherever. So in both Plagued by Fire and in Hemingway's Boat, you find yourself critically evaluating the relationship between fathers and sons. Frank Lloyd Wright to his preacher father and Hemingway with his, well, all his sons, but his, specifically his transsexual son, Gregory. And in some cases, and I'm thinking here of Wright, you make assertions that frankly run contrary to long-held beliefs about this person. When you're considering how far out on a limb to go, how do you weigh the pros and cons of of taking risks in your writing? Ultimately, the goal being to get the truth out. But yeah. what sort of things do you weigh? Yeah, it's a it's it's a tightrope. It's a it's a way. It's it's you get scared, and uh, you're going against uh, the you're going against the received wisdom. Uh, I would be. Um, wrong and uh, uh, ripe for condemnation, really, if I were doing it for the sake of trying to get a new take. Now, the new take comes organically because this is the way I've begun to, th begun to think about it and begun to feel if, if there isn't another truth here that we have to try to get to and it's scary it's worry it's it's frightful because you're already anticipating the condemnation if you've got your guts you try to go ahead anyway uh, i wonder if i can loop it around to john hendrickson who um, showed me something about bravery. He wasn't presenting any alternative truth. He just, for the first time in his life, opened up about his stuttering in the way that he never did at home to his family, to his parents. He'd been in therapy his entire life and stuff, but he never wanted to talk about it. Well, he talked about it to the world. That kind of uh, uncommon bravery in my very old age here as a writer inspires me onward but i in all these books yeah i have somewhat taken an, an alternative approach and how might i write down how might i in a word i'm not talking about alternative approach and structure we've already covered that uh an alternative take on the person um I'd say that um, this must go back in some way to being a seminarian. Um, I, 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 I'm looking for the humanity in the person. You say Ernest Hemingway and you say, oh, word association game. Uh, incredible writer, shit of a human being. I want to say, well, yes, but no. Hold on here a minute. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, 
incredible artist, an insufferable human being. Yes, yes. Uh, but hold on here a minute. I, I think I'm, I'm struggling to find the humanity in my subjects. Maybe that's part of the appeal to you about the subjects you choose to write about. It's like the thing that draws you to them is to deconstruct uh, whatever long-held belief. And again, that long-held belief is often rooted in fact and truth, but maybe there's more truth there, and that's kind of what you're looking for. Yeah, as I actually say at the end of the prologue of Plague by Fire, um, wonder if our ideas have not been correct, or at least not wholly correct. And what I'm trying to do is parse out the not wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y part. And at the same time, as long as we're ending this, uh, I'm trying to parse out the not W-H-O-L-L-Y part and at the same time, maybe trying to find a little of the H-O-L-Y part as well. And there we are, back to the seminary. <laughs> That's good. Well, Paul, uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been a great interview. I really appreciate it. And um, I think there's a lot here that will reach people on a bunch of different levels, whether they're admirers of your books or they're kind of learning about you as a journalist in the classic sense for the first time. But um, I, I really appreciate it. It's been a good conversation. Well, uh, it, the come, you know, it's a two-way street. It's only as good as the questions on the other end. And I'm a longtime veteran of that in both ways. So you did a great job. No, hey, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thanks, John. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.